There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, and it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole, and he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Good morning, Transit Church. Good to see everybody. So we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel. So if you grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew's Gospel, starting in the 26th chapter. We're going to read a few verses here. As we begin our time together in the Word, if you don't have a Bible down the center aisle of seats, there are a few Bibles on top of each other. You're welcome to grab that and look at it as we're working through the Scriptures. If you're new to your Bible, then uh, the Bible's a book, so at the beginning of your Bible, everybody's Bible is a table of contents, and you can find, uh, like any book, where the, uh, the, the page numbers for the various books of the Bible are. I don't know if it would help you. My Bible says Matthew's on 973. That's, it's probably not going to be the same for the, uh, that Bible there. All right, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 29 together. Read these out loud. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, a beautiful day. Thank you for the sun coming up and uh, just the newness of this day. We're reminded every time the sun comes up that you are granting us new mercies, a new grace for the day, and we thank you for it. Lord, we come in from all different walks of life. Everybody's in a different spot, um, and, uh, and Lord, I pray that in this moment that you would just hush the, the, the desperation perhaps in our souls. Would you quiet the shoulda, coulda, wouldas that we're thinking about right now, and uh, that you would help us to Focus in on your word just for a few minutes. God, we pray that your word would be penetrating this morning, that it would be informative, that God, that you would, as you can only do, that you would grab our hearts, that you would help us to make sense of what it's saying, and that, Spirit, you would apply this word to directly to us. God, I pray that we would hear your, your gospel, the good news proclaimed through these, uh, these words of Scripture, and that from that we would be changed. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So we're starting a new series today. It's going to be a four-week series uh, leading up and uh, including Easter, and we're calling it Man of Sorrows, and it's taken from a well-known passage in, uh, in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah's writings, as Isaiah, among other things, talks about a suffering servant. And this is a, a well-known passage, and probably the most well-known part about it is Isaiah talks about this suffering servant in terms of being a man of sorrows. And then listen to some of the words that Isaiah says about this man of sorrows. He says, he grows up among us. He's been chosen to bear our griefs. The will of the Lord will crush him. So some, some pretty graphic, vivid words that he uses to describe this man of sorrows. But then he says, through his suffering, he'll, he'll make an offering for our guilt. This man of sorrows would, would bear our iniquity, and ultimately from his actions, he would make us righteous. As we look into the New Testament, we learn that this servant is Jesus, and the way that he does all of this, that, that Isaiah is prophesying as he does it by the cross. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you know the cross is central to what we believe. The cross 
and the uh, resurrection that that follows it uh, of Jesus is why we celebrate Easter. It's it's really why we are here. And the story of the cross, really more than the story, the the facts of the cross is proclaimed in all four of the canonical gospels. The gospels is the the first four books of the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, We use the word gospel. Really, the, the gospels are simply the biography of Jesus. It's his life, his death, his resurrection. We call them gospels because the gospels don't do exactly what a normal biography would do. If you were reading a biography of a famous person or you know, a, a president, then typically a modern biography includes details about the person's childhood, their adolescence, how they grew up, education, about their manhood or, or womanhood, and then formidably about what they've done that's made them prominent. So the gospel writers don't do any of that in regards to Jesus. What they do is they focus on the centrality of the cross. And all you have to do is really take a a sample of any of the gospels. And what you'll see is over 40 to 50, sometimes 60 percent of the gospels is spent not on Jesus' life, not on his teaching, but on his cross, on, on him going into Jerusalem and by the end of the week being nailed to a cross and dying in our place for our sins. And so in scripture, the main focus of the cross is on Jesus' suffering. And that's really the aim for this series. It would be right to say that Jesus' whole life is, is one of suffering. From cradle to tomb, Jesus lived a life that, that mimics suffering, not just mimics it. He, I mean, he, his life is one of, of suffering. The Bible uh, gives us the theology that Jesus, who lived in eternity, condescended into this life. And just the fact that he, being God, was made man is a, is a suffering in and of itself. And that is the underlying principle of Jesus' life, that from birth to um, the rest of his life, he was really destined to die. From the very beginning, Jesus was identified with sinful humanity, and all the circumstances of his life reflect the fact, reflect the fact that he was bearing the sins of the world. John's gospel shows uh, rites of John the Baptist seeing Jesus coming close to him. And John uh, echoes these famous words, Behold the Lamb of God who will bear the sins of the world, who takes away the sins of the world. John actually wasn't the first person who, who would iterate something like that, though. 600 years prior to that, Isaiah prophesied much of the same thing in different words. What does Isaiah say? He says that this man, this suffering servant, Jesus, would be a man of sorrows. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the major events of, of Jesus' passion that shows us how he suffered as a man of sorrows. We're going to look at the Last Supper. We'll look at that today. We're going to look at the Jesus prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll look at Jesus being betrayed by one of his closest friends with a kiss and then being uh, arrested and put under trial. And then on Easter, we'll look at the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we're looking at that all under the overarching theme of the man of sorrows. I've got to be honest with you. This is a lot of theology, theology that I'm going to try and make uh, accessible to all of us. And, and though we're going to be talking about really Jesus' suffering, it's not just going to be all, all, you know, blood and guts. In fact, the Bible doesn't even put on display for us the graphic nature of, of Jesus' death. It doesn't tell us all those details. Why? Because the, the, the glory of the cross isn't that Jesus died, it's that he died to live again. Amen? So we'll begin our look at this man of sorrows with the Last Supper and... Really, the the context for this uh, or the background for this comes before the passage that we just read. Matthew does a beautiful job of laying out almost all of Jesus' sufferings during Holy Week uh, in this one chapter. So I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Read along with me. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He, Jesus, said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, uh, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, 
He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not even been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He, Jesus, said, You have said so. So what this, what, what, the, the passage of Scripture that I've just read really is um, unpacking for us the, this historic feast and meal observation called the Passover. And when it comes to the Passover, uh, this is an important time in history, not just because they're celebrating it, but because Jesus is, is with the disciples and what will come of it is, is, is most significant in, in really all of the Bible. Passover was one of the oldest Jewish institutions, and it occurred in concert with a feast called the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread. I'm going to explain that term here in a couple seconds. Uh, the, the Passover feast is, is, is like a 1,500-year-old observation at this point. It's, it's older than Almost every other observance the Jews uh, observed, except for the Sabbath, it's older than um, the Aaronic priesthood. It's older than the giving of the law by Moses at Mount Sinai. It's older than all the Levitical rituals that we see um, um, unpacked in all the Old Testament. And so for 1,500 years, Jews had been celebrating the, the Passover, and it was this huge pilgrimage where all of the, uh, all the Jews would, would come into Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time was a city of about 30,000 people, and once a year during the Passover, it swelled to about 100,000 people. Why? Because uh, it was ordained by God that they were supposed to come and experience the Passover, particularly in Jerusalem. But here's the important thing about the Passover. It was ordained by God as this annual celebration where the Jews, among all things, celebrated God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And we find that in Exodus 12. And so they were to remember a number of things. Firstly, in the Passover, they were to remember the, the, the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed for their ancestors. They were to remember um, the blood that was smeared on the doorpost, lest they suffer the same fate as these Egyptians in the 10th plague, the plague that um, killed the, the firstborn child of every family. They were to remember during the Passover the exodus that Moses delivered them by, you know, the great miracles of God. They were to remember during the Passover the great liberation that God had exacted for them from slavery. And here, here are the requirements for the Passover. It was to be held every year in Jerusalem and every devout Jew, which they were all supposed to be devout, were supposed to observe it. And so really what we see in verses 17 through 25 is, is this idea of of Jews, Jesus and his disciples celebrating the Passover, this sacred meal that where they were remembering God's deliverance um, out of Egypt. Now, here's some interesting detail. If you're interested in history, then go check this out. I'm going to give it to you whether you want it, you want it or not. Y'all ready? All right. So here's the way scholars say the ritual might have gone as as the Jews were celebrating the Passover. So on the 13th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, which would be our March, April. So right around this time, all unleavened bread, uh, all leavened bread, rather, the, the bread where the dough had been allowed to rise was cleared out of a Jewish household so that they could they could prepare for this feast of unleavened bread. And on the afternoon of the 14th, basically the next day, the Passover lambs were killed in the temple. And then that evening, every family would secure a sacrificed lamb from the temple. They would bring it into their home. They would uh, gather all the ingredients for their meal, and they would prepare themselves to have this, this annual feast. They would serve the feast on low tables, and everyone would recline either on tables or couches uh, or on cushions. So when the text says that they were all reclined around, around each other, that's what they're talking. This is a ritual that all Jews would have experienced. The Passover meal uh, in the midst of the Feast of Unleavened Bread wasn't just a meal. It was actually a liturgy. And so there's there's prayers, there's sayings, there's a sermon that happens, there's singing, and every family and their guests would have enacted this 
every year as they're experiencing the, the, the Passover. And so there were several courses to this meal. The first course was, was, was eaten after the father or the head of the family stood up and um, he basically prayed and gave thanks to God for the Passover day that they were experiencing for God's uh, grace and for um, his deliverance. And then they had a, a cup of wine. There were actually four cups that the Jews uh, would use and drink during the celebration. And you can see these depicted here on, on the screen of what those uh, cups were for and what they represented. And so the wine would be drunk after the first, first course. The first course consisted of bitter herbs dipped in sauces, fruits, and spices. Why bitter herbs? Because of the bitterness of being in slavery in Egypt. So every part of this meal had this symbology to it where they were re-experiencing the difficulty of, of being a slave in Egypt and how God delivered them. And they were giving thanks at every turn for that. And then came the main service or the, the liturgy part of, of the meal. And the father, again, would stand up and he would explain the Exodus story. He would tell uh, those that were assembled there. Uh, rehearsing how God, through the plagues and through um, the, the, the killing of the lamb, would, uh, would have delivered them by the blood of the lamb. And then they sang a hymn, and probably the hymn that they sang was hymn 114 or hymn 113. And of course, uh, hymn 114 in particular, uh, Psalm 114, uh, caused them to remember the, the exact words that were spoken and said uh, as they were being delivered from Egypt. This is the first stanza of Psalm 114. You can see exactly what it talks about. It talks about Israel, the Jews being delivered out of, uh, out of Egypt, particularly uh, being saved through the sea, the Red Sea. So that was the, that was the main course. Uh, and then what the father would do next is he would stand up, he would give thanks for the unleavened bread, and he would break the bread and pass it to his guests. Now, uh, when we get to the Lord's Supper, the, the words that, we, that I read at the beginning of, of my sermon here, this is probably the point that Jesus actually stood up, took bread, gave thanks for it, broke it, and said, this represents my body. And then what would they do? They would eat. What would they eat? They'd eat that lamb that was sacrificed that they had prepared, a roasted lamb served with herbs and sauces. And after this had been eaten, the father would give thanks for a third cup of wine, the so-called cup of blessing. That should sound familiar. The cup of blessing, this is the cup that Jesus probably held up. And he said, this is the, the blood of the covenant, right? Okay, so this, is, this should sound very familiar. And at last, the meal would come to an end. And then what would they do? They'd sing more songs. They would particularly sing some hymns, hymns that that perhaps you have never sang, but these are interesting uh, because it would come from Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. And listen to the words of, of these hymns. It, Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, uh, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he's inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I'll call on him as long as I live. Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And then Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Similarly, of course, in the Gospels, if, we would, if you would like peer down to verse 30, what does it say? It says, after they had experienced this meal, before they even went to the Garden of Gethsemane, they sang a hymn. These would have been the hymns that they were singing. The songs that they sang would have come from the Psalms. And of course, they would have drank one final cup of wine and then there would have been a blessing and dismissal. So what, you, what, what, I'm, what I'm articulating here is that Jesus and his disciples would have been would have gone through a typical Passover meal. And there's an order or liturgy to it that they, we, they would have experienced. And that really is what's coming out of uh, of verse 17 through 25. That's even what's coming out of the verses 26 through through 29. There's a lot that we can and should know as Jesus and his disciples experienced the, the, the Passover in verse 17 through, through 20, uh, 25. Um, what I would tell you is you cannot get an accurate depiction of, of what happens during Passover or even the Lord's Supper by looking at only one gospel. 
Uh, interestingly, the, the gospel writers all give us a different aspect of, of what it looks like for Jesus to institute the Lord's Supper and what it means. And so uh, if you have time, I would encourage you to, to look at what all the different uh, gospel writers to include what Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says about the Lord's Supper. But here's a taste of, of what the other gospels might say. For example, when, when Matthew in verse 17 and 18 says that he sends out the disciples to go and find a place for them to experience the Passover. Luke's gospel in Luke 22 tells us specifically it's Peter and John of the disciples that go out and do that. And that would have been no small, no, no small feat because they had to go find a spot. They had to go and uh, get the lamb, prepare it and prepare the room for, you know, these 12 or 13 people that were going to experience that. Oh, by the way, where do you find a room big enough? And that's um, that will accommodate all that they were going to do. Well, in Mark 14, we learned that they met in a large upper room that Jesus probably had beforehand already arranged this or some miracle was happening because Jesus said, go find a man who's carrying water, tell him the Lord has need of his house and he's going to give you what you need. All right. I mean, does that just happen? It, maybe it happened because Jesus said so, but probably Jesus arranged this ahead of time that they had an upper room. Most Jewish houses didn't have an upper room. They weren't that, you know, you had to be affluent to do that. And the text says that the room was already um, furnished and ready. So that means Jesus had done some prior work and this family that accommodated them for the Passover was affluent. In Luke's gospel, we read that part of the Passover celebration was a ritual cleansing. So during the, during the meal, probably after the first cup, uh, Jesus and his disciples would have stopped to wash their hands. And, uh, and here's what Luke tells us. He tells us an argument breaks out over who is the greatest. This is an interesting spot. And this is why I like the gospel writers. I like Luke in particular because he makes, the, he makes these biblical characters come alive. So in this moment where, I mean, it's a solemn moment. It's the Passover, the Passover meal. And they should have been focused on uh, washing their hands so an external um, requirement that symbolized the, the purity of their inward soul. But what, what are they doing? They're fighting, bickering, um, clamoring over, I mean, who's going to be beside Jesus? Who does Jesus like the most? They're, 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 they're thinking more in terms of their own pride, their own power, and their position uh, with Jesus instead of the solemnity of the moment. And um, in, in true fashion, what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. And so in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives them a verbal rebuke. He gives them a verbal rebuke by, by teaching them about the authority of the kingdom of God. And what does he say? He says, Luke 25, 22, 25, the least is the greatest, the first will be last, and the leader serves. But he doesn't just rebuke them with his words. He actually shows them what that looks like. And John's gospel is an interesting, has an interesting take on the Lord's Supper because John's gospel doesn't tell us about the mechanics of the, the bread and the wine. What does John do? John shows us Jesus demonstrating what, the, uh, what happens during the Lord's Supper. What does Jesus do? He takes off his outer garments, he puts a towel around his waist, and he washes the disciples' feet. Interesting take that John gives us, but he does it for a couple reasons. Firstly, the, the one detail in the midst of celebrating this Passover that has not been taken care of is there's no slave to wash their feet. And that would have happened before any Jewish feast like this. They, the disciples either overlook it or they just think it's not necessary because of the hasty nature of them coming together to do this. And so what does Jesus do? He does what should have been done at the beginning of the meal of washing these disciples' feet. They're, they're lounging next to each other, uh, you know, all in a row. Probably at some point, somebody's head was near somebody's feet. And in this day, in the first century, uh, they're... they're their chosen form of shoe was open-toe sandals. And so imagine uh, dirt, I don't know, just nastiness. I, I'm, I'm thinking of worse words than dirt. I mean, you can get it, right? Like caked on manure, right? Peter's, Peter's head and somebody's like, oh my God, your feet stink, dude, you know? So Jesus gets up and he takes the time to show them a lesson of, of humility, of, of condescending love, of what it looks like for the, the leader among them, 
the one that they call master, to actually serve them. And he not only washes their feet, but he adds it with these words. He says, you know, guys, you call me master and Lord, and, and look what I'm doing. You're bickering over who's the greatest and what have I done. I've taken off my clothes and I've washed your stinky, dirty feet. And so if I've done this, you should do it likewise, because the greatest among us is the one that's supposed to serve. And so he teaches them about humility. Probably the, the last and most shocking news of this whole meal is what comes out in verse 20. 3 and 24. And that's when um, Jesus discloses that one of them is going to betray him. And we discover that it's Judas. We know that it's Judas because we're reading the, 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 the details after the fact. Uh, scholars would say that probably the closest, the only one that knew that, that Jesus had disclosed that Judas was going to be the one that would betray him is John, because John is the one sitting right next to Jesus. Judas is on the opposite side, and so those are the two persons of honor. And so Judas is the one that's going to betray him, and none of the other disciples know this except for likely John. All right, so that's the background to the Lord's Supper. Let's get into the context. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again uh, of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. And so what's happening in this part of the text uh, there, there's words over in my Bible that obviously the, 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 the editors have written, the institution of the Lord's Supper, but this is still the Passover meal. And so this is not distinct from what we've read in, in verses 17 through, through 25. It's the same meal, basically what Matthew is likely doing. He's, he's backtracking, and he's going to give us more information on how Jesus is actually leading the liturgy of the, of the, of the Passover. Uh, but what the gospel writers all highlight here are, are two actions that Jesus takes in, in, in taking bread and, and wine and giving them to the disciples and ultimately making something new of it. And so that's the highlight of this text. And the first thing that we see that he does something new with is the making of the bread. So in verse 26, Jesus took bread and he blessed it. You know how you do for when you're, when you're eating out of your meal and you're, you're blessing, blessing the meal? Well, Jesus wasn't actually blessing the meal. He was actually praying. He was invoking a divine, divine favor on the recipients that something efficacious would happen in them because of the experience, not just because of the bread. And so he broke it. He, he blessed it, and then the text says he broke it. And this is a detail in all of the Gospels. This is an important detail that's firstly practical, but it's also significant. And so why would Jesus break the bread? Because it's unleavened bread. It's flat. It's large. And he broke it because that was the quickest way to distribute it left and right so that all the the men around the table would be able to, to eat some and eat it together. They would, they would have done this communally. But more significantly, Jesus is pointing to something significant about what he's, what he's instituting, the Lord's Supper. He's pointing to, to his future death as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Remember Isaiah 53, the, the man of sorrows, particularly verse 5, says that Jesus would be bruised for the iniquity of his people, that he would have the wrath of God fall upon him, that the chastisement of our peace would be upon him. And so, when Jesus breaks the bread, this is the essence of the sacrament. By, by Jesus' brokenness, he would bring us peace. By Jesus' brokenness, he would heal our wounds. By Jesus' brokenness, he would win our redemption. Now, let me insert this. Do you, do you know that Jesus' body was never broken? In fact, the, the gospel writers, when he's on the cross, make the point of noting to us they didn't break the bones in his legs um, because he had already died. He'd already given up his spirit. So what is it talking about when it says that he's broken? It's talking about his brokenness of spirit. It's talking about all the ways that he suffered 
uh, despite his, his body being beat on. That's what it's talking about here. And through that brokenness, we win our redemption. But let me not get, get, get ahead of myself. So he, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it. And then the text says, he gave it to the disciples and says these great words. He says, take and eat. This is my body. If we would look over into Luke's gospel and what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, they add this extra phrase. They say, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples would not have been expecting Jesus to say that. Th- those, those aren't the typical words that, that a, a family head would have recited as he's um, giving the liturgy for the, the Passover. In fact, the, the typical verbiage for the breaking of bread during the Passover would have been something like this. This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors and uh, which our ancestors ate when they left Egypt. But that's not what Jesus says. In fact, Jesus here is breaking from tradition in the Passover and he's giving the disciples something new. He breaks the bread and then he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and I would tell you the disciples would have been stunned because as they're, I mean, they're they're following along with him in a liturgy. As he says, "This is my, this is this is the bread of affliction," or whatever he would say, they would have been eating the bread. So can you imagine the the normal liturgy you're used to? I'm just going to eat the bread, and he says, "This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance." They would have been like, "What did he say?" As they're chewing bread, and here's what Jesus is doing. They're mid-shooting, they're listening to him, but he's explaining, or really he's, he's pre-explaining what he would do on the cross. In fact, Jesus is revealing several things simultaneously as he institutes the Lord's Supper. Here's the first thing he's doing. He's linking the Lord's Supper, this new thing that he's, that he's instituting with the celebration of the Passover. And he does that so the disciples might know that he, he, he's accomplishing something greater than the Passover, Jesus is about to accomplish something even greater than the exodus that their ancestors uh, experienced 1,500 years prior. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what? Our ancestors ate unleavened bread, symbolizing leaving Egypt, symbolizing starting new, symbolizing uh, leaving the influence of our lives of bondage and slavery. That's what the unleavened bread represented. But I want you to take this bread and eat it because it represents my body. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that he's saying that the bread somehow magically turned into his body as they're eating it? Please shake your head and say no. Right? Because some people believe that. In fact, some of you grew up Catholic. There might even be people in the room right now that consider yourselves Catholic and you've grown up under the doctrine of transubstantiation. And the doctrine of transubstantiation basically says that Jesus physical, uh, his body becomes, uh, this bread becomes his physical, literal, actual body in your mouth as you're chewing it, right? That's, I mean, from a Protestant evangelical reformed reading of the Bible, that's not what this means. So what is the bread? The bread is a picture. It's a metaphor. Think back to John chapter 6, and here's what uh, here's what John chapter 6 informs us of. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people, and so he has this horde of people who's following behind him because he's done this great miracle, and he's fed their tummies. And so they're, they're, just, they're following him. They, they want to see what the next miracle is. All right, what's he going to do next? This is going to be a nice meal. And Jesus decides to tell, I mean, he teach them a lesson and get them away from him. And so he says, hey, I'm the bread of life. And then he goes further and says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Now, here's the rules on interpreting the Bible. You interpret literally, but spiritually at times. When do you interpret spiritually? When the literal doesn't make sense. All right. And so Jesus is not condoning cannibalism. That would that would not be the reference that he's giving. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says, all right, thou shalt eat people's flesh, because that gets you closer to God. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's conveying a spiritual um, idea through a physical means. Eating bread is a 
as a, as a spiritual nourishment. In other words, he's using symbolic language of faith because faith is spiritual eating, and that's what the metaphor is, is used here for. And so if you don't eat, what happens? You die. That's, that's in the physical sense, right? Guess what? That happens spiritually as well. If you don't eat, you're going to die. You need nourishment, not just physical nourishment. You need uh, spiritual nourishment. How do you get it? You do it by eating. And so Jesus is saying, if you don't believe in me, people, if you don't trust me, you're going to die because in faith, you're spiritually nourishing off of, of me. Faith is spiritual eating. And so when he says these words, take and eat, this is my body, here's what he's saying. Believe, trust on what I'm doing, what I'm going to do on the cross. It's nourishment for your souls. It's the spiritual nourishment for your, for your life. And that's the way that we appropriate the benefits of, of his death. And so, again, when Jesus says these words, take and eat, this is my body, uh, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's saying, I'm giving you my body to die in, in death, and it's for you. That's what these words means as we're experiencing the Lord's Supper. My body, as this bread is broken and consumed, my body will be given for you. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. There's an atheist woman who grew up uh, atheist. And I mean, she really was uh, uh, vehemently against Christianity. But interestingly, she, she grew up reading C.S. Lewis novels. And she particularly liked uh, the character of Aslan, and the Chronicles of Narnia. And what she liked about Aslan was the, the you know, the, this fictional idea that a lion would be willing to die for his friends to save the kingdom. Little did she know that the picture given by C.S. Lewis of this lion willing to die for his friends to save the kingdom, that she, I mean, she loved this character. But who was she really loving? She was loving Jesus because that's what C.S. Lewis was writing about. And I would tell you that's what's happening here as well. And so he's linking the Lord's Supper and the celebration to the Passover. Secondly, he's pre-explaining the meaning and significance of his death on the cross. And this is important for these disciples to realize that Jesus' death wasn't an accident. He wanted to know that it was purposeful, that from the very beginning, Jesus had been embracing the plan of God, and he's pre-explaining what's going to happen to them because he's going to die in less than 24 hours. And he wanted them to know that when it happened, it was the plan of God, and he had submitted to it. Thirdly, he was instituting a new sacrament. The Baptists call this an ordinance. And what's the sacrament? It's a sacrament. It's, a, it's, a, it's an observance, a physical observance where we use symbols and signs to convey a theological idea. And the, the way the Bible explains it theologically is as we participate in these symbols and signs, it's efficacious to us. In other words, there's something that happens on our inside that grows us, develops us, makes us more mature as Christians without us even knowing it. And that's what a sacrament does for you. So, so the Lord's Supper, is he's instituting that here, and it's for all Christians to observe in all ages until he comes. And that sacrament is designed to strengthen our faith and give us an assurance of, of Jesus' love for us and the promise that we're going to obtain uh, a benefit from it. What's the benefit? The, the coming of the kingdom of God to live with him forever. Amen. So I grew up, I, I didn't grow up a Christian but I did grow up going to church, and definitely my favorite day to go to church was the day that we were going to do the Lord's Supper. I mean, as a, think about it. As a little kid, I, I didn't hear what the pastor said. I was usually sitting beside my mom or my dad, leaned over, drawing pictures. But if I knew it was a Lord's Supper day, oh boy, that meant I was going to get a, a Scooby snack like right at the end of the service before we went home. And in our church, it, was, it wasn't bread per se, it was a little wafer, and it was a, a shot of grape juice. And I used to love that. Little did I know, I mean, in fact, I did know as a young kid, all the things that that bread and that wine um, 
held in, in the picture of what I, you know, of, of what I was sneaking to eat. And I would be honest with you, uh, it took me several years, probably 10 or more years before I really even understood the, 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 the serious nature, the, the depth of theology that's in the Lord's Supper. So hopefully you're getting a little bit of that, that now. So first, there's the meaning of the, uh, the, the bread. Secondly, there's the meaning of the cup. Verse 27, here's what he says. He says, he took a cup and he gave thanks. That's the Greek, uh, Greek verb, uh, eucharisteo. It's, it's where we get the idea of eucharist. Eucharist means to give thanks. And so he thanked God for the provision, but not just the provision of, of food. He's thanking God for um, the, the way that God gives us this, this picture of delivering us from all those things that we can't deliver ourselves from. So for the Egyptian, uh, for the Israelites, for the Jews, it was deliverance from the bondage of slavery, which they couldn't have, they couldn't have delivered themselves from that. And for us, when we receive the Lord's Supper, you should be thinking through, Lord, what are all those things that I'm trapped in, in my mind and my body that, that like, like I, I don't, I'm not even strong enough in and of myself to loose myself from these bonds. And those are the things that, that spiritually God is wanting to give you as a benefit through the through this sacrament. And so he gives thanks, gives thanks. And as he gives thanks, he then gives the cup to the disciples and he says, drink of it, all of you. This would have been one cup. This is the third cup right here. Right. And they're passing it around. They're passing it around and they're all drinking from one cup. And scholars would say this, there's a picture here. There's a picture here of of the unity of the brothers but also our unity in, in Jesus, that we're drinking from one cup. Verse 28 continues, Jesus says, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew and Mark's gospels just say covenant. Luke and then in Paul's gospel, I'm in mean Paul's gospel, Paul's, uh, Paul's writings in 1 Corinthians 11, inserts the word new covenant. But here's the thing that all the, all the, the, the gospel writers and Paul are, are highlighting here. Jesus is not just continuing the same old covenant from the, from the Old Testament. He's starting something new. He's beginning a new covenant that's written in his blood. And we see that in Exodus 24, verse 8. And so what, what Jesus is doing in these words of, of the Lord's Supper is he's reiterating all the laws that the Jews would have known and that they would have lived by in the covenants that God had made with man that all require blood. And so if you think about what you know about the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with, with Noah and with Abraham, how did he ratify it? He ratified it with blood. They took an unblemished animal, they sacrificed it, they took its blood, and what did they do? They scattered that blood primarily on the altar. We find that in Genesis 8 and Genesis 15. Here's what uh, Moses writes in, in Exodus 24. That when the covenant at Mount Sinai was ratified, Moses took blood and sprinkled it on the altar. And then he sprinkled it on the people. And he says these words, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the uh, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Can I tell you, this is God's grace demonstrated in the Old Testament. What I mean by that is God is making a covenant with people who are sinful and they have nothing in and of themselves to merit God's favor at this point. All they have done is be themselves. And so God has chosen them. He sent Moses with miracles to deliver them. He's brought them to Mount Sinai, and he's going to give them some laws and say, hey, guess what? I'm making you my people. You're now mine, and I'm going to be your God. And the way that he ratified that was to take an animal an unblemished animal, sacrificed it, and used its blood to atone for their sins. And so the, the, the idea of the Old Testament is whenever God was initiating a reconciliation between himself and people, he used a sacrifice. Not just a sacrifice, but he ratified it with blood. Why? Because in the wisdom of God, the way to atone for sin was to have a sacrifice and the blood be spilled. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible says. And so the Old Testament pattern is a sacrificial animal not only had to be killed, but its blood had to be shed. Many of you are familiar with the Leviticus passage, Leviticus 17, 14. The life of all flesh is in its blood. For a life 
truly, for a life to truly be sacrificed, its blood had to be shed. Why? So that we might know that a relationship with God costs the blood of a sacrifice because of the heinous nature of our sins. That tells you how serious your sin is. So what's Jesus doing here? Jesus is ultimately telling us, I'm going to do this on the cross. This, I, I am fulfilling this Old Testament pattern in a new way on the cross. But that's also what's been symbolized in the Lord's Supper, that Christ would be a sacrifice that spills his blood. Three quick points on the cup and the blood of the co covenant, and I'll be done. Firstly, the cup symbolizes Jesus' death as a covenant sacrifice. This is the only place in Scripture, in the Old Testament particularly, where blood and covenant together are linked, uh, and that blood is sprinkled on people. There's a lot of passages that talk about covenant. There's a lot of passages that talk about blood being spilt, animals being sacrificed, and that blood being spilt on the sprinkled on the altar. This is the only place, Exodus 24, 8, that combines the two. Blood being splattered on the altar, blood being splattered on the people, and a covenant coming from that. And so here's what Jesus is saying. My death on the cross is a covenant sacrifice. And Jesus is, is really saying the same thing that the writer of Hebrews has said to us, that that the blood of bulls and goats um, can forgive sin, but can't forgive it fully. And so Jesus is saying, you know what? This is absolutely right. The blood of goats and bulls does not, has not, will not, never will forgive sins. But guess what? My blood does. And my blood does it fully. He's saying that his death is going to be a covenant sacrifice once and for all, which will actually bring about the forgiveness of sins. Second, Jesus' blood is poured out for many. I think of all these things that I'm going to say, this one is the one that gives me the most encouragement. I, I don't know why, but it just does. And, and here's the significance of it. Uh, it goes back again to Isaiah 53, verse 11. Isaiah writes, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. I think that, 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 that's, that's code word for saying many will come to faith through what I've done. God is talking about his chosen people here. And here's the nuance. Isaiah says that Jesus is going to die not for a few, but for many. He dies not merely for Old Testament believers, but for a multitude of people that none of us knows. And they're going to come from every nation, every language, and every tongue. It's going to be Jews and Greeks, slave and free, black, white, red, yellow. I mean, how many other colors of people are there on the planet that Jesus is, that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before that, that Jesus on the cross would do this great thing? that Gentiles and Jews and everything in between would be brought in and Jesus' death is going to be for them as well as for all believers. That this man of sorrows would do that for us. And thirdly and lastly, Jesus dies for the forgiveness of sins. This is why Jesus' blood is poured out, to forgive us of our sins. This is a beautiful passage in Jeremiah 31. I'm not going to read it because I'm out of time. But here's what Jeremiah promise. He said the Lord would covenant, to, covenant with us, and it's not going to be like the old covenant. And Jeremiah has in mind Exodus 24, 8. He said it's not going to be like that, although that was a good covenant. No, uh, because you know what? You disobeyed that covenant anyway, because you're a, re a rebellious people. No, God is going to come and he's going to covenant with you in such a way that there won't even be external laws. He's going to give you the spirit and the law is going to be inside of you. And then at the, la at the end of that, that prophecy, Jeremiah says that God is going to forgive you of, in of your iniquity and, and pardon all of your sin. So Jeremiah is promising that there's come, going to come a day when the Lord is going to fully and finally forgive our iniquity. And this is the same thing Jesus is saying to the disciples here in the midst of the Lord's Supper. He's saying, oh, by the way, guys, this great event that Jeremiah speaks of over 600 years ago, I'm going to do that tomorrow on the cross. When I die, my blood is going to be poured out. Sin is going to be forgiven forever. Because of my death, sin will be forgiven. And so Jesus is saying to them, as he said to us, all of you drink of this cup. 
Now, here's the significance of this particular Passover as expressed in the New Testament. This is the last one. This is it. So some of you have Jewish friends that, that still celebrate the Passover. I've been to a Seder meal. They're, they're some of the, I mean, it's the best food. It's some of the most symbolic thing. I mean, uh, a symbolic observance that of, of any religion. But I would tell you that right here in Matthew 26, when Jesus is experiencing the Passover and then institutes the Lord's Supper, this is the last divinely sanctioned and authorized Passover ever held. Why? Because Jesus says, you know what? I'm fulfilling this and I'm going to something new. I'm introducing a new covenant whereby you don't need to remember God delivering the Israelites from Egypt anymore. Why? Because what I'm doing here on the cross is a far greater Passover. What I'm doing here on the cross is a greater deliverance than, than what the Israelites experienced in Egypt. And I'm going to call it something new, too. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to call it the Last Supper. I'm not going to call it Passover. I'm going to call it the Lord's Supper. So why do we call it the Lord's Supper? Because it's new. It's a new covenant Jesus instituted. I'm going to finish with verse 29. Here's what verse 29 says. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so at the end of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is doing something equally significant. He is both anticipating and saying that when we experience the Lord's Supper, we're bringing about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? This huge theme in the Bible that talks about the rule and reign of God, not just on planet Earth, but, but in our lives. And he says when we experience the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of, you know what, life here kind of sucks sometimes, but there's coming a day, it's a, a promise that, that all of that will be subsumed by this great promise of God. He's going, and th here's the imagery. Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I'm with you face to face, sitting right across from you, experiencing the, the, most, uh, the, the greatest delicacies and the greatest drink that the world and eternity has to offer us. And that's what we're supposed to look for, because these disciples... I mean, right then and there when he says these words, I mean, this was one of their darkest days. In less than 24 hours, their best friend, their savior would, would be killed on the cross. And then the three days after that, I mean, they were hunkered down, afraid for life because Jesus had been crucified and he's in a tomb. It's their darkest day. They have nothing to live for. And so Jesus is trying to give them hope and strengthen them for the road ahead. And he does that same thing for us. So what is it we do when we, when we experience the Lord's Supper? Paul said it best, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus has that same promise for us. Friends, I may not be here physically to experience the fruit of the vine with you, but I've left these signs and symbols for you to remember me, to remember your great deliverance, and to remember that I will indeed experience it with you again. Amen. We're going to finish by saying a corporate prayer together. Would you stand with me? I don't know if you're going to be able to see it well, but let's say these words together. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our, and our souls washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. And everybody said, amen, amen.